A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have reached the end of another tumultuous week, ladies and gentlemen, and it would appear it is all about the data. Of course it's all about the data, right? As the government prepares to launch yet another lockdown on parts of the north of England, it is claiming it is being guided by the scientific information once more. But where... Ladies and gentlemen, is the evidence. First of all, the evidence for closing tens of thousands of venues across the north of England is based on a sample size of just 100 pubs and is once again the result of an enhanced contact tracing exercise, their words, not mine, by the Chris Halfwitty Brigade. In other words, it's made up nonsense extrapolated from an assumed scenario. Then there's the looming beds crisis. The Director of Public Health in Liverpool and some other health professionals, none of whom are actually doctors, have warned that their hospitals might be overwhelmed somewhere between 10 and 22 days from now. Hmm, we've heard that one before, haven't we? That's might. That's could. It's a set of circumstances that may conspire together. That's an if. Then there's the actual facts. The average age of COVID death is 82.4. That doesn't mean people younger than that won't die, but it is a fact that it is almost one year older than the average age of non-COVID death in this country. Do you see where we're going with this? Meanwhile, SAGE, uh, those uh, very unsage people who advise the government on scientific policy, are basically saying the new COVID-19 rules won't do any good anyway. Guess why? Because they don't go far enough. So who's in charge of the clattering train? I'll be taking the government's temperature this morning with George Pascoe Watson and Dr. Wakar Rashid. 0344-499-1000. It's already happening in Scotland. It could be happening in the north of England. Where else are they going to try and strangle the economy? Coming up later on, we'll hear from travel guru Simon Calder as the latest quarantine changes uh, take place. And it looks as though parts of Greece may have opened up again. And a rather less than warm welcome that he got from some people in Wales. Plus, the sons Olivia Utley joins me with her take on the big stories of the week. Kevin O'Sullivan will be along as well to tell us what's coming up on his shows over the course of the weekend. And it's Friday, so it's time for the Perrier Awards. And I'm asked to my brilliance in broadcasting all week in the company of producer Marta Malagon. 0344-499-1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. You know what to do. It's Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, a very interesting spread, as we used to call it in uh, newspapers, in The Sun today, uh, in which uh, they tell the tale of COVID-19 in numbers. And let me just run through some of them for you. 15.3 million people on NHS waiting lists. 11,000 people waiting more than a year for NHS treatment. 53% of people struggling to see a GP. 14.5 million fewer dental visits. 3 million cancer test backlog. 35,000 more cancer deaths, 10% weight on mental health treatment, one in three beds being used for COVID, despite uh, the panic merchants up in the Merseyside. 2,300 calls are being made daily to the Samaritans, and there's been at least 500,000 redundancies. Now, doesn't that sound like the government's getting this slightly wrong? It does to me. Let's talk to George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications. George, very good morning to you. 
And good morning. Excuse my dress don't look like. Listen, it is Friday, and I think even uh, in the days, those halcyon days of, uh, of when you were still in newspapers, you know, you were allowed to dress down a little bit on Friday. So, you know, it's the new, uh, you know, it's the new black, isn't it? Something like that. Let's talk about what's going on in government corridors, because at the moment it would appear um, that there is a bit of a swing away from the sort of Chris Whitty, Patrick Vallance and Sage advice to a kind of at least a, not a, an acknowledgement by Boris Johnson and certainly Rishi Sunak that we have to be careful not to kill off the economy. And particularly, as we know, that at the end of October, when the furlough scheme ends, there's very sadly going to be a huge number of people who will find that the job that they've worked on for years, maybe decades, mm. is not going to be there for them any longer. And the government, the prime minister, the chancellor know this only too well. And so they've got that in mind as they try and find a balance between trying to close down the resurgence of COVID-19 in the UK but also keep the uh, the economy running. Yes. The hospitality, the leisure trade is in a desperate, desperate situation, uh, as we all know. Uh, and of course, they feel up in the north that uh, they are unfairly being targeted. But the trouble for the government is they've got to follow the numbers. Well, you say that, but that's what I kind of want to pick up on this morning, because they say they're following the numbers. But actually, many of the numbers that they are following are, shall we say, predictions at best, modelling uh, at worst, and in some cases, downright misinterpretations of what's really going on. For example, we hear from Liverpool, uh, the director of public health there. And I'm very concerned, by the way, about all these directors of public health, because these are people who study public health uh, in university. Now, they're not doctors. They are not actually scientists. They are basically civil servants. They're public servants. They're administrators. But they are the ones that are making all these decisions based around ad advice from doctors who are saying, oh, but we must be very careful in case it all goes horribly wrong and loads of people die. You know, basically, we're hearing that, that in Liverpool, there might be an overflowing of patients to beds within 22 days. That's what they're saying. If, in fact, uh, some curve continues to go the way it's going. But it may not do that. And there are lots of other parts of the country where there isn't that problem. And equally, all the Nightingale hospitals are empty. So why do we have to have this immediate sort of panic setting in because people think something might happen? Well, you've hit the nail on the head, Mike. This is the real dilemma. The dilemma is, what if the uh, numbers, what if the stats, what if the modelling turns out to be wrong? And it could well turn out to be wrong. It wouldn't be the first time. Well, exactly. Neil Ferguson getting this wrong uh, in the past, 10 years ago. So this is a real concern of mine, is that ministers are making decisions based on modelling, which could turn out not to be true. And we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and everything else that we've got. And we could have avoided the pain and the agony for people. Well, not only, not, not only that, not only have we thrown the baby out with the bathwater, uh, but we've, we've turned off all the taps and we've set fire to the house. Uh, precisely. And we've got nothing left. Yeah. And the danger here is that ministers are erring too much on the side of caution. Now, of course, I'm not a government minister, nor are you. Uh, and they would be the first people to say, if we ignored this advice and it turned out the advice was right, then we would be culpable for many, many uh, deaths on our hands for not listening to the advice. The trouble again with all these things, of course, is scientists, doctors, they are not agreed with each other either on what's going to happen next and how seriously we should be uh, taking uh, measures to, to stop what is definitely numbers going up, but uh, we also know that the number of people going to hospital is not as high as it was. And as you say, we've got Nightingale hospitals, we've got uh, consultants, surgeons, anaesthetists still unable uh, to, to actually do any work because they work for private hospitals and private hospital capacity has been bought uh, by the NHS. So these guys are sitting around doing nothing whilst we know that heart and cancer and other sufferers uh, from really serious and, and often life-threatening conditions are not being treated. I got to say, this is the dilemma we always knew was going to happen. This is the victim of uh, these are victims of COVID uh, in, in, in another way. Yeah, but exactly right. But this is where uh, you make your money and you earn your money as a government minister. You know, nobody said it was going to be an easy job. It's like when they first give you a, a newspaper to edit and you suddenly have to make a load of decisions based on what's going to happen tomorrow morning when the chief exec sees the paper you've produced, when the real editor sees what you've done and various people start complaining that your judgment was way off. You know, they give you that opportunity, they give you that job because you're supposed to be trustworthy and you're supposed to be able to know what you're doing. And I think the trouble here uh, is that you can't sort of 
a pussyfoot around and keep saying to people, well, we mustn't do that just in case there's a problem. You know, you've got to lead, surely. Leadership is about leading, not about being worried about making a decision. And what's interesting, Mike, is, uh, you know, I speak a lot to the government. And uh, if you spoke to people in number 10 right now, they would say they are showing leadership. Uh, you may not like the decisions they're taking, but that is leadership. And they are prepared to be unpopular with you for what they consider to be the right decision. And in fact, uh, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader today, has written a piece in the Daily Telegraph in which he accuses the government of a white hole knows best attitude. Mm. Now, number 10's reaction to that is, forget it, we're making decisions, you're not. It's easy to throw uh, rocks from the sidelines, but the tough thing to do, as you rightly say, Mike, is to make decisions whether or not they're popular. And uh, the only time will tell whether they're the right decisions. And in fact, in some ways, we may never know. I always go back to Tony Blair's decision to uh, invade Iraq mm. based on the evidence of the only advice he could take at the time, which was from the security uh, and intelligence services, who very clearly said Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. It turned out they were wrong. But as the prime minister, he had to base a decision based on the best information he had at the time. Well, that depends on which version of events, I suppose, you follow, whether or not Alistair, Alistair Campbell sexed up the dossier that he got because it wasn't hard line enough. But, you know, government shouldn't be run by people who believe everything they're told. Surely it should be run by sceptical individuals who ask the right questions. And if I was, for example, sitting in Downing Street right now, I would look at Professor Whitty straight between the eyes and I would say, this enhanced contact tracing exercise that you're giving me as evidence to shut down tens of thousands of venues in the north of England is surely poppycock, isn't it? It's based on this, right? If two infected people both tell tracers that they have been to a venue in the past week, it is seen as an indication but not proof that the virus may have been transmitted between them, but they don't even have to have had to be in the same place at the same time. I mean, that doesn't even make any sense. So you're going to tell people to stay off work for two weeks because they might have been in contact with one of these two people who may or may not be uh, positive for coronavirus. It's a nonsense. And it seems like a nonsense to you and me. And, and, and of course, the, those people listening to the show this morning will be shaking their heads and scratching their heads. And, of course, there is a, quite a lot of doubt and scepticism creeping into the whole debate here. Mm. And that's why it's very difficult for the government, because, uh, A, do we know that the government is actually cross-examining these people properly? We hope so. That is absolutely their job, is to not accept everything they're told. Uh, and second of all, is to make a uh, real sense to the country of what are the things we should and should not be doing. Mm. That's difficult when regionally and locally the, the pandemic is impacting people in different ways. So there are different uh, rules and different conditions for different parts of the country, which makes a bit of a soup nationally of what the, the rules are. And that's one of the things I know that ministers are struggling with and they're going to be changing up the guidance uh, next week to hopefully make it crystal clear to all of us. My instinct is ministers are doing a pretty good job, I have to say, in terms of cross-examining. But we do know that not all ministers are agreed either right. on the way forward. Uh, we know that the business-facing uh, ministers, Alok Sharma, Rishi Sunak, uh, and others are much more concerned about the economy than they are about the health service. And, of course, as you'd expect, Matt Hancock and his team much more concerned about the health of the nation and whether the hospitals could cope with a, a sort of tsunami of, of cases. Yes, but the health of the nation is not just about treating one particular virus, is it? And that's where Matt Hancock, I think, uh, is making a mistake. If there's 35,000 more cancer deaths, that's nearly as many as the COVID death toll that we've got uh, over the past seven months. And that is not acceptable if you're allowing those cancer deaths to happen on the basis that cancer treatment isn't available. I mean, Matt Hancock got up just the other day in Parliament and said, you know, if we don't all adhere to the new regulations, they'll have to ration cancer treatment. I think that's an outrageous thing to say. Well, I'm going to stick up for Matt on that because I have spoken to him about it. And, and what he was doing was raising the alarm about the possible enormity of what could happen if we didn't get on top of the, the disease. Yeah. Now, I, he's not in any way making a judgment that one is more favorable than the other. Um, he, you know, he's a pretty fair minded guy, but he's got a task here and he's trying to make sure that we can get this cancer treatment to people. And the fact is the numbers do actually show and this is not modeling the numbers do actually show that huge numbers of individuals have not gone for cancer treatment not gone for diagnosis and that is something which weighs very heavily on people's minds uh, and of course that's not even thinking about the mental health mm. problems and the anxiety and 
all the downsides that come with that kind of problem, which will be caused by the economic malaise. Right. And, and the fact is, my personal view is we need to be in a situation where we are living with COVID. COVID-19 is not going to go away. I don't think we're going to get a vaccine anytime soon. We need to live with it. We need to get some sort of a herd immunity. We need to get an economy which can be flexible but can cope and can grow. And we need to give people the confidence to live their lives uh, and that we can actually manage to live with this condition. We yes. can't keep closing things down. Well, indeed. And, and Rishi Sunak has made that very point and said that we mustn't be fearful of it. And I think he's absolutely right. But Matt Hancock, meanwhile, seems to be terrified of it. I mean, if you were able to ask him about it, I don't know whether you were, but what's his view of the Great Barrington Declaration, where an awful lot of esteemed and very knowledgeable scientists and doctors have said that this is disproportionate. It needs to be done differently. Yes, of course, people have to be protected. However, you know, you have to also be aware of the, 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 the whole, you know, the economy and the round the whole country um, and the country's health. And that Great Barrington Declaration came and sort of went, didn't it, during the week? And I thought it very interesting, the front page from the Daily Mail, and then after 24 hours, we didn't hear much more about it. So, uh, I mean, I think the government looks at all that kind of information and, and incoming and for now is set on a course. Uh, and therefore, if it picks up steam and more and more doctors join that alliance, then of course it begins to get a sense of momentum and a, and a sense of uh, power, and people have to listen to it at that point. But but again, as I said, the science and, and clinical community is itself not unified on what happens next and mm. on how it should be handled. Now, your uh, particular area of expertise these days, George, is public relations. What do you make of the appointment yesterday of Allegra Stratton, former ITV journalist, to become the new sort of face of number 10 at these daily briefings. Is that going to change any dynamics, do you think? In, in all honesty, I think it's a very interesting experiment for the British government. It's a job that I wish Allegra well in. She's extremely accomplished, a uh, bit of a star, very good fun, uh, but also very uh, you know, sensible and common sense, I think. Um, it's a difficult job, though. It's not a job that many people would want. The ability to be able to stand on live, uh, TV and answer any question thrown at you in some way which doesn't make you look as if you either don't know what you're talking about or that it's a surprise or that you've managed to find the right tone and posture to answer every single question. is It's a hard job. Nobody, I can tell you this, nobody, even the Prime Minister, can know everything that's going on in, in government and that can be uh, put at their door. And so it's a, it's a bit of a... Uh, a hard task to ask somebody to be mugged up on absolutely everything and not drop the ball in front of the uh, TV cameras. Sure. And, you know, having been a former member of the, the press corps in Parliament, I know just how random questions can be and how uh, brutal they can be put. Absolutely. So it's, it's a difficult challenge for Allegra, but I think there's nobody better than her to, to handle it. No, it is. I mean, certainly people got a bit fed up, I think, with the um, uh, the press briefings that was happening on a daily basis because a lot of the questions were kind of gotcha questions. An awful lot of it was, you know, people trying to score points against either the prime minister or another minister uh, or some of the scientists, you know, and it started to become um, a sort of self-defeating exercise. Presumably they're going to bring it back in the hopes that it won't become that again. Yeah, but the, the, one of the issues here is, of course, we we crave and demand to hold ministers and the prime minister and the, the Chris Witties and Patrick Valances to account. And that's right. And so when these uh, events don't go well and they go off uh, and they stop them, then we, we, we criticise and say, well, we've got nobody to hold to account anymore. So we, we, we want it both ways, in a sense. Um, the media is always going to try and score points. The media is always going to rightly... Uh, challenge and to try and find headlines. The danger, I think, for this uh, plan is that having been 15 years as a political correspondent, I know the randomness of the questions that can come up on a daily basis. The most serious, major international questions about Britain's national security or the economy can be followed immediately by the most ridiculous on the face of it piece of gossip that somebody wants to raise with the Prime Minister's spokesman just to have a feel for where that story is going to go and if the Prime Minister's spokesman is going to react in some way. And that's okay behind closed doors, but now it's going to be on national television. It's going to elevate uh, sort of the flotsam and jetsam of gossip 
uh, into the same level of seriousness as major international stories. And, and that's going to be difficult for the government. It's, it's, it's going to give them more fires to deal with than they, than they already have. Yes, quite. Well, let's see what the weekend brings. It looks as though very much on Monday there will be more lockdown measures in, involved in the north of England. Scotland has already uh, put them in starting, I think, tonight. Uh, a lot of dissatisfied customers up there in business, particularly in bars and restaurants, because it just seems to be very, very much the case that when everything opened in July, there wasn't a spike. Now that everyone's gone back to university and school, there is a spike, but they're blaming the hospitality business. And that's a very hard cross for the hospitality business to bear. And the hospitality business, as you know, has done enormous uh, efforts to uh, make sure that they are COVID friendly. And they really have put their shoulder to the wheel. They are working super hard to try and defend and and make their places good for their customers you know the fact is they care more about their customers than anybody else does because without their customers they don't exist what i would say mike and i'm going to say this in support of of the government um nobody in government is less concerned about the people and their health than the hospitality industry is about their customers and you've got to believe that they genuinely think that they're taking the right decisions it's not something that they take lightly, shutting down things and imposing curfews. Many people in government are deeply uncomfortable, including the prime minister, I have to say, uh, about the steps that they're taking. But in the end, they have to make a decision and they've made this decision. And in a sense, that is at least leadership, um, whether or not we agree with it. And uh, I can only hope that what they're doing is the right thing and that we can still find a way to make a, an economy grow. Don't forget, we're about to leave the European Union fully and finally uh, in, in basically a matter of weeks. And we need to make sure that as Britain turns to become a global Britain, that we remain sovereign, being able to make our own choices and decisions, but also be able to trade with the rest of the world successfully. And that is the route to success economically so that we can find new jobs, new sources of uh, income for the millions of people in this country who demand and need uh, to work and work hard. George Pascoe Watson, thanks very much indeed. Former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications, wishing Allegra well there. Allegra Stratton takes over uh, as the new face of number 10. They're going to be White House-style TV briefings on a daily basis. I'm not quite sure when they are due to start. She's currently an advisor to Rishi Sunak, former ITV journalist, though, of course, as well. Um, here's a couple of more uh, statistics for you, for those of you who wonder whether uh, it's right to criticise this government. 1.5 million cancelled procedures in the NHS. 86% fall in maternity care, 2,700 lockdown deaths, 50% fall in A&E visits, 45% slower 999 responses. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, as I've been saying, uh, the big story this morning on the front pages is all about various bits of data being collected, various opinions being given by various experts. On The Guardian, uh, the COVID-19 rules don't go far enough, according to SAGE members, who are, of course, the people giving the government advice. NHS drive to ensure non-COVID sick get help. There's going to be a campaign, apparently, uh, which aims to speed up access to the NHS for those people who need it. Vulnerable face months of having to stay indoors, according to The Times crippling toll of Covid rules according uh, to the Daily Mail and the Sun Lockie Horror profs grim NHS warning to the North this is Chris Whitty has warned the number of Northern Covid patients in intensive care will top April's peak I mean is there any time that this guy Whitty actually comes out with anything positive he looks as though he's never smiled in his entire life let's go now to Olivia Utley Deputy Leader Writer at the Sun uh, to find out what on earth is going on Olivia very good morning to you Morning. Hey. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I saw that you were uh, in Parts North uh, quite recently, which looked very nice up in the Lake District. Um, did you notice anybody up there uh, suddenly walking around with more COVID than you could see down here? Because, I mean, that's what we're being told. Yeah, well, didn't notice it, but uh, we were in Liverpool. We went to Liverpool and then to the Lake District. Yeah. And Liverpool, so sorry for all of the pub and restaurant owners. We were pretty much the only people there. Really? Um, because had been too scared to come out and they also weren't allowed to meet members of other households Mm. Um, so yeah these poor pubs and restaurants have got no help from the government they they don't think they're particularly at risk they're perfectly happy to serve customers but customers aren't coming no Um, well this is i mean this is the worry isn't it that the effect of all of these warnings that are given out uh, is that basically business shuts down anyway i mean they've done it in scotland where they've told pubs oh you can stay open you just can't sell any booze 
yeah, which is the worst of all worlds. Not mm. that I think that furlough scheme for hospitality should be extended. I mean, that would be very, very, very expensive, obviously. Um, but you kind of think the government has got to do something for these poor pubs and restaurants mm. whose customers have been scared away. And I mean, in Liverpool, they've just been terrified by everyone. Um, and it's a bit ridiculous because most of the places that we were going would have should have been filled with young people who aren't seriously at risk of the virus anyway. Um, and yet they weren't there. We were we were just being waited on hand and foot because we were the only people in it. Right. It's, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, we're looking at, uh, at Merseyside today because a guy called Matt Ashton, who's Liverpool's Director of Public Health, he's complaining that it may well be, he says, I don't want to panic people, but within seven to ten days, our hospitals will be at the level they were at the peak of the pandemic. Um, well, that's certainly not going to panic anyone. And he reckons in 10 to 22 days, they will have run out of beds. Now, again, this is all based on a model which may or may not turn out to be true. Oh, yeah, and this running out of bed thing, I mean, it really puts the wind up people, obviously, and yet in the last peak, um, which apparently, you know, no one's even saying that, that the next wave will be bigger. They're saying that it might be the same size. That seems to be the worst-case scenario. And the NHS was never in danger of being overwhelmed during the last peak. It just seems to be a public health person thing to say. Yeah. terrifying. And, you know, it's... Public Health England, I cannot believe how much they've screwed up over the course of this. I mean, there's obviously the most recent thing with 16,000 people's data being lost, so not being contacted with information. But before that, they couldn't get the the PPEs the right places. I mean, they, they did literally everything wrong from the beginning. And the reason is because they spent the last few years telling everyone not to eat chocolate bars and nannying us all over obesity crises, mm rather than concentrating on what they should have been doing, which is preparing for a massive pandemic. Yeah, or indeed using computer modelling from uh, 2007. I mean, I, I, like you, was pretty uh, astonished when you found out that uh, the Excel spreadsheet programme that they were using uh, was actually from Microsoft 7 um, back in 2007. But also Public Health England's name keeps appearing. And I keep, I've been asking this question all week to all sorts of people who can't answer me. Matt Hancock named Public Health England in Parliament this week as well. But I thought he'd done away with Public Health England. I know. I don't understand. I think he's doing away with it and replacing it with another quango with a different name. Yes. So kind of much for muchness. And maybe he's just forgotten that he was planning to rename the quango. That's what it seems like. Because I don't think that this big change of name is going to be quite the shake-up that we were hoping for. No, exactly right. And also this kind of public health... um, madness is starting to annoy me you know like the guy i've just mentioned in liverpool he's not a medic he's not a doctor he's not qualified in any form of science he is uh, a guy who studied public health he did a public health degree and then became the leader of a public health organization which is basically a civil service admin job isn't it yeah i know and all of their predictions just seem to be so wild yeah there was that amazing letter in the telegraph from someone pointing out that if if Chris Whitty or whoever the public health expert was was right with his prediction that cases would double every week until Christmas or whatever, or till the middle of October, then it would mean that the whole of um, the United Kingdom would be dead by New Year. Yeah, um, that was the trajectory that we were apparently travelling on. Um, and these, yeah, these public health. Well, I guess experts, that would save the NHS, wouldn't it? I would save the NHS. That's true. Still lying. <laughs> But, I mean, this is the trouble, and we're being led by all of this, and there doesn't seem, despite this declaration that happened this week, which was very sensible, a lot of people thought that 8,000-plus um, people signing a declaration which seemed entirely logical and which was asking for a slightly different approach while still taking care to protect people but also protecting the economy, um, that seems to be um, making no traction whatsoever in, in the halls of, of government. No, I think this is the thing. We seem to have a very inward-looking number 10 who doesn't seem to be willing at all to accept any kind of reasonable thoughts from others from outside of the government. Um, so just no alternative plans are being considered. Mm. And all this stuff about are we following the science or guided by the science, um, it seems they're just following the panicky scientists every letter. Yeah. Um, the economy doesn't seem to be coming into it at all. No, and all these dire warnings of, of terrible things to come, you know, you think after six or seven months of it, somebody in Parliament or somebody in government would be saying enough is enough. And we thought that Keir Starmer was that man, did we not? Uh, And Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, when finally he actually said to Boris Johnson, you know, can we see some evidence, please, of this 10pm curfew and why you're doing it? And I thought suddenly we may be this may be a big moment, but it turns out not to be. Yeah, that was a wonderful moment. And I really thought I wouldn't have predicted this, but Keir Starmer has come to the rescue. 
And then he said, no, actually, he did approve of the 10 p.m. curfew. He just It just needed to be reformed. I mean, what does that mean? You right. either have a 10 p.m. curfew or you don't. <laughs> um, couldn't get my head around that at all. Uh, and I just, I, what is he on about? It would have been great. It would have been amazing if he just said, look, this clearly isn't working. Show us some science or scrap it. No. Join the Tory rebels. But he's not willing to join the Tory rebels because he'd rather play politics than actually do anything. Right. And well, was it not the case that Boris revealed in the Rule of Six um, debate that despite the fact that uh, that Keir Starmer claims to support the government at its every move, uh, Labour actually abstained from that vote? Yeah, I think abstaining on this sort of thing is just so pathetic. I mean, huge decisions for our country. Mm. You know, future of hundreds of industries and businesses rests on it. Whole, literally whole industries rest on it. And Labour's abstaining. I mean, at least the government's wrong, but it's consistent. Um, <laughs> Labour's got a position. I mean, this is just useless for Labour. Well, how does Keir Starmer think he's going to make a proper impression? He's, he's not the most sparkling of blokes. Um, if he seriously wants to beat Boris in the next election, he's going to have to say something and do something, not just point out that the government was wrong after the event. Yes. I mean, isn't it interesting as well that, that uh, you know, there are still many, many people in the Labour Party who are at each other's throats. It turns out this week that the Unite Union withdrew some funding from Keir Starmer because they're still kind of in thrall to the left and to the, and to the people from, um, you know, uh, the Jeremy Corbyn sort of wing of the party. And some people really don't wish to see Keir Starmer succeed at all and that's from his own party yeah i know and then i think you've probably got the same the same on boris's backbenches as well i think there are quite a few tories now who are so fed up of the government's nannying and public health obsession without factoring in the economy at all that, mm. that, that they don't particularly want boris johnson to succeed anymore so that's quite a strange position to be in given that the election was only months ago mm. and that all were elected under their party leaders. Yes. Oh, no. I mean, we, I feel as though I have to mention Donald Trump to you this week because that's been a massive story. Uh, obviously, we had Donald Trump coming back out of hospital. His triumphant helicopter return to the White House was like something out of Hollywood, out of a Hollywood movie. You know, then we get the, uh, the possibility of a virtual debate um, uh, he then comes out and says, I'm not doing that. You know, once again, Biden on the back foot because as Trump's going, no, I'm going to have a few rallies instead. Yeah, I mean, he's a bit nuts, but like, I kind of admire the punchiness, you know, all of this virtual debate stuff. We all hate it. I mean, everyone hates watching yeah. virtual. The Tory party conference this week seemed like the most depressing thing ever. I know. No to watch these webinars. Um, so I sort of rate Trump for just coming out and saying, nah, I'm not going to do that. Um, and Biden doesn't really want to know what to do. He's sticking by the rules. And this is just, yeah, as you say, put him right on the back foot. Um, but yeah, that said, Trump and then, And then, I mean, the final ignominy, horror of horrors, to end the week as a sort of bookend, Donald Trump does not win a Nobel Peace Prize 2020. Instead, they give it uh, to the World Food Programme for apparently solving world hunger. I had no idea. That's well done to them. Yeah, great. Well done then. Who knew? Um, <laughs> yeah, poor old Donald Trump. I don't really know why he was expecting that, but yeah. No well, it, I mean, I was only hoping you would get it just because it would have upset loads of people, which would have been quite It would amusing. be hilarious. And, yeah. and you can imagine how he would have paraded around the White House Rose Garden uh, with his Nobel Peace Prize saying, you know, I solve world peace. But we'll have to wait for another year <laughs> yeah, perhaps for that. Let's, let's talk finally, Olivia, about the Sun's poppy um, campaign because coming up to November, obviously, um, you know, our, our, our thoughts turn to um, to Armistice Day and to um, uh, things to remember and Sunday and all of that. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, so um, charities are obviously forgotten victim of COVID. Uh, people are losing their jobs, so they can't afford to give anymore. Plus, charities can't collect in the way that they used to. Um, fundraisers can't stop you on the street, etc. So lots of charities are losing lots of money, but particularly the Royal Legion, um, because about a third of their poppy sellers, who tend to be a bit elderly and on the vulnerable side, um, aren't selling this year, uh, which, which puts them in a really difficult position. So the Sun has launched this huge campaign, um, getting people to donate online um, or bulk buy poppies and sell them to their neighbours. Um, and it's picking up quite a lot of traction. We've got a poppy on our front page every day from now until the 11th of November. Uh, so we're hoping that, that that our readers can actually reverse the the tide against the Royal Legion this year and that, that we'll manage that the Legion will manage to raise as much as ever. Um, that's the plan. So yeah, get online and, and buy a poppy. Yeah, online. I mean, I wonder whether Remembrance Sunday itself will be affected because obviously, you know, the normal kind of uh, cenotaph remembrances will, will maybe not be able to be done in the same way if, if we've still got these, you know, crazy restrictions in place. 
Yeah, um, I think the Queen, though, will find a way to, 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 to do something, even if she can't go to the cenotaph, and um, might be sort of the first time that, that we re really kind of see her out and about. She's, she's in her element on, on Remembrance Sunday, obviously means a lot to her. Um, so I think it'll still be, it'll still be celebrated um, in some way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it won't be quite the same. Well, it would be a bit ironic if, um, you know, all sorts of demos that were allowed to go ahead in London um, were fine. But in fact, you know, a lot of veterans turning out in, in, in the mall were not allowed. That would really be tough, wouldn't it? I know, particularly as the, the Remembrance Sunday is naturally socially distanced. You know, it's not crowds of people screaming and spitting on each other as no. people stand at a respectful distance. Um, apart it doesn't seem to be it's also outside and i still don't think there have been any any cases of covid definitely being transmitted outside so i don't quite see the logic mm. behind it no indeed quite uh, no exactly yeah. right olivia thanks very much indeed olivia utley deputy leader writer at the sun with her take uh, on the big stories of the week millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's Friday, of course, so we will have some Perrier Awards for you. Looks like a beautiful day out there, actually, down here uh, in London town. I don't know what it's like where you are, uh, but certainly uh, the colder weather has come through. Uh, but the blue sky is still there. I can look out over the, uh, high, the, the, the high rise buildings in East London. I can see the Tower of London as well. It's all looking resplendent in the sunshine. Um, here's the thing, though. Um, if you are going to be out and about this afternoon uh, and this evening and this weekend, what are you going to be doing? Because by and large, it's starting to get more and more difficult to do anything in some parts of the country. And it may well be that by Monday in the north of England, large portions of the countryside, uh, including pubs, restaurants, cafes, all sorts of other uh, public areas might be shut down. But on the other hand, only the other day, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, why don't we all go back to the cinema? This was shortly after uh, uh, one of the, I think it was View Cinemas, announced that they were shutting all their cinemas down. So let's talk uh, to a man that knows a thing or two about the way we should be treating this virus. Dr. Wakar Rashid, consultant neurologist, uh, a specialist in MS as well. Uh, Dr. Wakar, very good uh, morning. Welcome back. Hi, Mike. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much indeed. I've been trying to make sense of all the different pieces of data this morning, um, Wakar, because there seems to be a conflicting narrative emerging here. We've got, on the one hand, Sage saying that uh, it's, too, uh, it's, it's too early to say, but they don't think locking down pubs and restaurants is a good enough um, uh, lockdown. They should be better and bigger than that. Uh, we've got vulnerable people telling, being told they may have to face months of staying indoors front page of the times um we've got all of these lockdown restrictions in scotland coming in later on tonight um you know there's there's it seems a bit all over the place to me and i'm worried that uh, the government isn't sort of interpreting the data properly yeah there, there does seem to be confusion difference of opinion and i guess what you can read from that is that there's no absolute consensus and no one really knows fully 
the answer. And I think when people are unsure and don't know the answer, then there's a tendency to be uh, overcautious and actually over uh, overcompensate, if you like, and that you end up with ever increasing amounts of uh, measures and mm. lockdowns being proposed because. You know, if, all, if it all goes wrong, the person who's actually proposed the most severe lockdown comes out, if you like, as being the person who can say, well, I told you so. Yeah. Well, exactly right. And I mean, I worry that we are leading um, sort of public policy based upon what the, the future kind of um, inquiry results will be. And that's not really the way forward. I mean, what have you made of uh, this Barrington Declaration this week where an awful lot of people, I think 12,000 now have signed it and said that, you know, not just the British government, but other governments around the world need to look at alternative ways of treating it all. So, yeah, if you, if you think back to uh, February and uh, when uh, we were seeing uh, the virus sort of spread from China elsewhere, um, overwhelmingly, what the action was taken across the world was this sort of lockdown suppression strategy. And what we heard from time and again from uh, government here, but also in other countries similar, was we're following the science, we're going with the science, we, we are simply putting in place what the uh, WHO and our own scientific experts are saying. The one slight exception to that was in Sweden, where they actually had a more independent scientific body and came up with a different answer. And so now what we're seeing very clearly, and this has been the case for quite a while in my opinion, but it's now crystallized with this declaration, is in fact, there is no one science for this. There is actual genuine uncertainty mm. about what to do with this. And actually, I think the, 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 the narrative that was being said, of we're following the science and we're going to deal with this, was, was really an overpromise by people to think that they could influence what is actually a significant force of nature. Right. What do you make of the stories coming out of Merseyside, um, particularly from their uh, director of public health, who is who is suggesting that the beds uh, in Liverpool's hospitals yeah. may indeed be reaching capacity between 10 and 22 days from now because of the increase in cases? I mean, I've said to you before, surely what we should be looking at is hospital admissions. Are hospital admissions going up uh, everywhere or are just in certain parts of the country? So it looks very strongly regional. And it's interesting, if you look at the hospital admissions pattern, it's, and also if you look at the positive case pattern, this is, there's a real marked regional difference. There, there is a, a general increase in positive cases, not so much in admissions, um, but uh, across the country. And I think that's in large part uh, been, uh, been a, a factor of uh, uh, the university openings again. So you've seen interesting, Nottingham's really interesting because you've, you've heard it in the news of uh, the spike in Nottingham. And in fact, uh, a couple of days earlier, there was a report that uh, over 400 university students had tested positive in yeah. Nottingham. So I suspect there's, there's some relationship there. Well, exactly. Uh, I mean, I asked that very question to somebody uh, in Newcastle uh, who was from one yes. of the, um, um, the, the sort of the business community in Newcastle. I said, well, surely one of the reasons why Newcastle has spiked is because of all the students who've gone back to, to university. Yeah. They, had, they, they reported, I think yesterday, day before 1,000 uh, in Northumbria and Newcastle students yeah. testing positive. So clearly, clearly, I think, you know, that, that has been one of the factors as, why, as to why we've seen a general increase in the positive cases. In, ter in terms of infections and serious infections, hospital admissions, it does look as if the northwest, Liverpool, Manchester, parts of Yorkshire, Humberside and the northeast are leading the way. Um, why is that? You, you, can, you can only... Uh, put uh, certain theories in place. I think the one thing I will say is that it's interesting that London South East hasn't followed that to date. Hopefully it doesn't follow that. But if you remember the original uh, epidemic in the spring, London and South East was far more affected uh, earlier. And I think um, in terms of the, uh, I don't want to get too complex here, but I think in terms of the initial susceptibility of serious infections amongst the most susceptible group of people, I, I suspect that's already happened in London and the South East. And what we're seeing now is that process going on in the North West in Manchester, Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, and so would you say, would you say inevitably then that that might pass? Because it seems there does seem to be a kind of geographical aspect to this. And we saw it in America where, you know, where it first started out being very uh, serious, it then spread and those places that originally got it bad uh, recovered. This is... Um, the pattern with viruses in general, and this is where you get this term exponential rise. So you see this rapid uptake amongst people who are unfortunately, for whatever reason, very susceptible. And, you know, it, this this happens if, and if they're in close proximity to each other, then it will happen more. Um, 
lockdowns actually put people more in close proximity to each other within households. Now you could say, well, we're trying to stop the spread in other households, but we're not, we don't live in, in absolute bubbles in that way. And it's actually very hard to do that unless you're prepared to actually stay in your house for months. Yes. Um, yeah. And during that time, you're actually weakening yourself as well for, by weakening your health in general. So right. again, there's, there's a lot of counterproductiveness about the whole thing. So what, but what you then see is as you, you run through that uh, initial group of people who unfortunately are more susceptible is that then the rate will start to flatten out. It won't go away because the, the virus is still kind of being kept on at a, at a level, but it should, as it did in London and the Southeast, um, from really about uh, mid to late April onwards, that, that's exactly what happened. And um, so that, you know, unless this is a new uh, strain, which uh, for, uh, uh, for some reason people in the Northwest and North England are more vulnerable to, that's likely to happen again. Mm. And so I would suggest the priority is making sure that the NHS is able to cope with the numbers in those areas and to try and strengthen the population as a whole in those areas so they're more resistant. So they have it's sort of promoting good general public health. Yeah, I think good public health is, is all to be uh, applauded and, and lauded and sought for. But when you see stories like this about the contact tracing app for England and Wales has only sent one alert about a coronavirus outbreak in one venue since it's been going for the last two weeks, you don't really have an awful lot of confidence in the fact that that's going to help things because we were told, were we not, that basically the contract and, uh, contact and tracing app would be key to controlling the virus and the spread of it and to make sure that people were not um, uh, you know, taking unnecessary risks. But it's worse than useless, isn't it? And then it turns out that the data that they're going to use for closing pubs up in the north of England was basically cobbled together um, by Messrs Witty and Valance from some kind of study which was a sort of extrapolation of a couple of people in a pub. So if you look at the app, first of all, I think you can see the time it's taken for that app to come on, on stream shows the difficulties they've had with it. And uh, uh, if you think about the principle of it, you've got a, an app that some uh, that you know people some people will download, some people won't. You then have to input positive uh, positive result in there. Mm. If you've got to rely on other people inputting positive results, then you've got to rely on the phones communicating and then sending alerts in the time. It, 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 it's it's science fiction stuff. It's great if it works, yeah. but it, it's, it's got a number of potential places where it can go down on. And uh, that's similar with Test, Track and Trace as well, that you, you've got a, a whole behemoth of such a large um, entity, £10 billion pounds a, a entity, uh, which is trying to find people uh, who've with a, in a virus which is endemic and maybe asymptomatic as well and, and using telephones and things like that. And again, you're kind of saying, well, mm. you know, what mm -hmm. is the contribution here? And so what you have in dealing with your final point about extrapolation data is incomplete data sets, which are then being used to, to form a narrative. And uh, I, I think the, there's a, you know, there's a clear, there's a clear mindset amongst um, scientific advisors uh, that obviously mingling or being in contact with people promotes virus uh, spread and, and and no one can argue with that but um, what you're looking for is a, what they're looking to do is actually a step further than that which is actually taking measures which haven't actually shown that they make a difference over and above the standard measures which were put in place early on the piece in terms of good hygiene uh, and isolation if you've got symptoms yeah. and, yeah. and appropriate distancing. They're, they've taken it a step further with really very limited evidence. Indeed. And it has a huge effect. But I guess the problem I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to here, Wekar, is that, you know, we're told that other countries have done track and tracing better. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Uh, Germany seems to be back in, uh, in, in sort of positive territory rather than negative territory. Um, but I worry that government policy is basically being made and being decided upon um, on what can only be described as sort of dodgy science. So my, I, I have a, quite a simplistic view of this. I think the reason why we've got so many rules and so many ideas and constant changing is because the measures have limited effect, if any. And if you look back at the very basics and the fundamental beginnings, that's where you saw the, the basic rules of hand washing hygiene and these are the things that, that do make a difference and actually were making a difference before lockdown everything that comes after is a belief um an, an, an over belief if you like in the ability of these things to actually stem what is an endemic virus and this as you said in your um, just before i came on 
there's been so many different variations in different countries and actually in the long run it's not going to make any difference and what we're doing in the process is actually doing a lot of harm with these rules economic harm but also a lot of health harm with these rules and actual the endpoints could even be worse um, there was a study from uh, the university of edinburgh published a couple of days ago suggesting that lockdown actually will cause more lives to be lost and the, the very simple reason for that is that uh, at best all you're doing is prolonging this epidemic and so you're putting more people eventually uh, into exposure with the virus mm. so eventually you're actually uh, particularly as you're weakening them in the process by uh, reducing uh, uh, good health measures of you know getting good exercise getting vitamin d getting the sun and just general good health and happiness so this eventually has a long-term effect and if as you say we're talking about several months probably to the spring by the look of it and this is they've really got to just stop a minute and actually say to themselves um is what we're doing actually making a difference and are we actually doing more harm than good I think that is the key question. I'd have to say uh, the answer is uh, no and yes to both of those. Dr. Wakar Rashid, consultant neurologist, MS specialist, of course, as well. Uh, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Have a great weekend. Uh, big weekend coming up, of course, if you're in Scotland, because you might be able to do anything. But there will be plenty of people, trust me, uh, will be drinking. There'll be plenty of people playing music. There'll be plenty of people singing, maybe even dancing, uh, maybe even, um, you know, getting close to one another. But they just won't be doing it in a pub. So how does that change anything? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. But I'll tell you what else we do here at the Independent Republic. We do homeschooling every day uh, after the news at 12.30. Uh, we get somebody here or on Zoom or on FaceTime to tell us about something we didn't know anything about. Today, I'm delighted to say uh, that we are going to welcome Seneca Silla, lead musician at Mobilla Arts. Seneca, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank today. you for thank you for popping in. Now you're a drummer, right? That's right. And you brought a drum with you. Yes. Um, what do you call that drum? The name of the drum is called djembe. Okay. Which is a traditional African drum, you know, been invented by the Mandinka people. Okay. From Mali, like mm. thousand thousand years ago. Okay. Even. Yes. And and why would it be that they would have invented it in the first place? Was it something that they? Because before you invent a drum, you don't know you're going to like it, do you? That's a good question to ask. The reason why they invented the drum, as we know, like it's a, it's a history and a story, because like 200 years ago, there was no technology existing. Right. The reason why we invented the drum is to send the message. Right. From the people. Okay. You know. Right. So it was like communication. Like communication. Right. Thank you so much. So between the villages, maybe. Villages, yeah. To the next, yeah. All villages, right. yeah. <laughs> and so is it something that you learned from an early age? Yeah, that's a good question. When I was nine years old, I start demonstrating. You know, learning how to play the the African traditional drum, which is mbala. Right. I start from mbala. Mbala is a traditional West African drum played between Senegal and Gambia. Okay. It's a drum you play with a stick. Okay. From the age of age of ten, and I start demonstrating again, playing the social event ceremonies and marriage and you know, you know weddings and stuff. From the 20, 20 years old, I start you know learning the djembe from right. a teacher, which is originally from Guinea. Okay. You know, he taught me how to play the drum, and from there I started playing all the government seminars and doing entertainment in the industry, in the okay. hotels area. All right. That's how I begin to and start. And do you normally have one person playing it, or can there be a lot of people playing no, it? Yes, normally. Normally it should be like four people. Right. Because you got other instruments to which the, accompany the djembe, right. which is the dundung and the sambang and the kenkede. Yeah. And right. how much of that is just how you feel like doing it? Do you have to learn sort of certain rhythms, or do you just go with it? Yeah, because we have to learn. Don't forget that the tradition in the Manding, we have to learn in a very early age. Uh -huh. You know, because there are things that we don't write down. We don't write things down. Right. You know, we have yeah, to. Yeah, I don't. I'm the same. I don't write anything down. <laughs> waste of time. This I can't mean, read it anyway. If I that's write the it. reason why it's oral traditional. It's not been written. <laughs> right. Anyway, you've okay. got historian. Yeah. Which you normally used to go and see. You know, is there? They come from the family of their blood. Anyway. Okay. So those are the ones who generate the stories of your ancestors and your grandfathers right. and everything. Okay. Yes. And how hard is it to play? Is it is it is it hard to learn? It's not really hard to learn. No? You know? Is it fingers more than hands? No, it's just getting used to it, but it's not really hard. Okay. As soon as you recognize the sound, right. the most important thing is the sound. Right. Because you've got three different sounds. Mm. And those three sounds, all the all the, those three, three sounds complement all the, the rhythm we're playing. Okay. So as soon as you recognize that, you find it so right. easy. And yes. now we haven't got, we've got a microphone for you, but not for the drums. I hope yes. that's not a problem. That, that should be all right. Is that all right? Yeah, that's And awesome. I think we have some kind of a backing track that we're going to yeah, play yeah, as well. Yeah. So, because yes. I'm, I'm going to ask you just to, to, to play now. You yeah. want to do a bit of that? 
Do we need to wait for the backing track? And do I have to talk about the company or not? Yeah, afterwards. Yeah, all right. But, yeah, can we, I get... but we want to hear it. Yes. Yeah, so before we'll before it. I'm going to start, I'm going to tell a story. Okay. Because as I said, the drum is a history. It's right. tell a story. That's what we like. So the story we're going to tell is, I'm going to play a rhythm called folklore, which is from Gambia. Okay. Yeah? As from the Manding people, the drum, we don't just play the drum simply because we play the drum. We play the drum to tell a story. Mm. So this rhythm is come from the folklore, from the Mandinka people. Normally you play with traditional uh, instruments. Okay. We'll call it the Julanjang, you know, Kuturinding, Kuturiba, but I'm going to accompany that one, the djembe. Okay. Yeah? And are yes. they like string instruments? Or? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. So can I have the back? Let's go. Indeed, that was fantastic, and really, I mean, we don't get a lot of music uh, on this show, so that's fantastic to hear. Really, really, Thank, really, really so good. Much. So, so that would have been if you were hearing that, yes, uh, in Gambia. Um, is that the sort of thing that would happen? Would be at a wedding, or it would be used in, a, in any particular way? Yes, because among the Manding people, the Jembe, the Jembe accompany all the all all the Malinke activities, right. like marriage ceremonies and weddings and all these things. But the problem is now when we start playing, we just send the invitation. As mm. I said, it's the message that we send. There's people who just come and dance and right. just enjoy their. It stuff. does. It does make you feel like dancing. I must <laughs> say. So, so tell us about Mobile Arts because that's that's where you're from. Uh, that's the company you work for. So Mobile Arts is an organization company registered. Yeah, we're based in Wallstrom store. Okay. We established in 2006, and we are specialized doing drumming, African drumming workshop and performance and. Acrobat. Okay. And so people can come and learn how to do yeah, it. Yeah, people and storytelling. People just come. We, we teach in schools as well. So mm. people could just come and learn and do it. And then at the Black History Month, at the moment, we all know we are in the Black History Month. Yeah. You know, there are some events we have which is taking place at the moment on the 10th and on the 17th, which is in Wallstrom Store in East London. Right. And I, I teach African drumming classes as well, workshop, the adult classes in Wallstrom Store, Black Horse Lane. Okay. Yeah, and we are we our website is double double no, right. UK. Okay. If people want to check us out, they can just go online our website m b i l l a a r t s dot co dot uk. And if you want to buy say a djembe a drum, can you can you buy one from from where you are or? Yeah, of course, because the drum I I make the drum with myself, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I play, but at the same time. You know, I sell djembe. Okay. And when the skin is broken, I make it for myself. Right. Yeah. Okay. So What's I've, the skin? What, what do you make the skin from? So it depends. Sometimes some drummers want their heart to be set their hands to be very hard. Yeah. To get the that that sharp note. Right. So some of the drummers use the cow skin. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Some of the drummers use like goat skin because right. the goat skin is the skin is very soft. Okay. That's the reason why we use that skin. But right. my drum, I made it with cow skin. Okay. That's just to make my hands feel good, more right. better. To That's that. nice. Yes. That's good. Because also, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm a big music fan anyway, but I mean, I've seen um, a lot of uh, bands around uh, the, the years kind of adopting mm. certain things like maybe a bit of African drumming or some steel drums from Jamaica. Absolutely. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, are there any kind of bands at the moment that are using African drums that, that you know of that maybe mm. are kind of co-opting it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, like, so they use a little bit of... Um, mm. like, I mean, I used to listen to a guy called King Sonny Day, mm. um, who I'm not sure if he used those kind of drums, but he had a very African sort of sound, you know? So, yeah. 
absolutely. But you know, it's 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 a wonderful sound, and it's mm. a great uh, it's a great thing to learn about. So thank you for coming mm. in. No problem. And Seneca Silla. So uh, if you go on the website mobilaarts.co.uk, you can find out where to uh, go and see uh, an exhibition of it, and uh, and get on get into it. Thank you so much. Thanks for very nice to meet you, right. Seneca. Thank you very thank much you. indeed. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's 12.48, it's Friday, and it's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. say there's not uh, 100% compliance going on. It's getting a bit better. No, it's just uh, about 50, isn't it? It's 50% compliance, I'm afraid. Um, yeah. There's also this, It looks a bit empty in there today. What's going on? Yeah, well, there's been a... Because we've had a studio guest. Ah, yes. Uh, poor old Izzy has uh, had to escort the guest out the building. Oh, OK. All right. So uh, that's why that. she's not here. All right. Well, but... welcome, uh, Marta, for uh, uh, the end of another great week in well, the Independent you. Republic. thank you. It's, it's been but, a good one. It has been good, hasn't it? It's going to be a good one. And, um, you know, for the listeners that... The, the it's new your birthday week as well it was we my birthday say. week yes 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 i am another year older wiser <laughs> yeah older especially <laughs> let's not go into that good afternoon and welcome to the perry rewards thank this you this is where we look back over the past week of the so-called so independent cool. republic of my grandma mm. on radio and choose our favorite moments as it's tradition mike the first perry goes to you, you and it's the self-appointed idiot of the week and what's the easiest way to dig that hole because you only want a little, you only want a little. You, you yeah. laugh. I know you're laughing, Gardner. You know, but I'm, I'm going to ask you these idiotic questions because I'm an idiot. <laughs> well, you when said it comes, it. To, when it comes to gardening, I was, oh yeah, I'd like to limit that uh, yeah. allegation. No, of course. Yeah, I'm not an idiot in all areas. No, but I mean, digging no. holes is not that easy. Oh God, I wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. Some I mean, people don't know when to stop digging. Well, yeah. But that's another story. <laughs> that's a completely different story. That's not me. Um, Conservative MP and friend of the show, Colonel Bob Stewart, joined yes. us on Tuesday and he delivered the compliment of the week. And I think, Bob, lots of us have changed our behaviour. I mean, I certainly make sure that if I'm walking down the street, I walk... You've got thinner. Um, have I? You think? Yeah, well, I, think you've got I don't think that's been deliberate. I think that may just be the, the, the trick of the lights. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Very nice of him to say. Yeah, mm. I would just say just take it. I should have done, yeah. Oh, thank you so thank much. You of course, I have. Um, another one for you, Mike. It's the correction of the week. Mm. That doesn't exist. Everybody's going to have a gigabot of broadband. A gigabit, even, of broadband. Gigabot. Gigabot? What is that? I don't know. I'm asking you. Well, I actually missed this one because I wasn't in the Twitter. room. I'm sure there's probably somebody on Twitter called so. Gigabot. Probably, yeah. Imagine. Well, yeah, because of bots, Twitter bots. Yeah. I know, I guess. Uh, this week's uh, James Larvin Perrin Award for Technical Incompetence mm. goes to the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Oh, yes. And while we're waiting for Rishi Sunak uh, to speak, because Rishi Sunak will be talking to the virtual Conservative Party conference coming up uh, very shortly. And I think uh, we are about to get the Chancellor right now. He's now up. Is he? No, he's not. Here he is. Being appointed Chancellor. <laughs> Finally. Went a little bit early there. You yes. sure you've attributed that to the correct um, well, person? I was, I was going to say that later, <laughs> about two minutes in, we lost him completely. Yeah. Everyone lost him. Right. Because, you know, the, 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 the feed that we were being given by conservatives, yes. it, it just went down. Well, they didn't have a great week technologically, did they? They have not. They have not. I can only assume that James Larvin is actually working with them. Maybe he's been going over there to help them and out for the week. that's why, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. <laughs> anyway. And they expect people to pay for that as well. I guess, yeah. Well, we didn't give them any money. I didn't give them any money no. personally. No, I mean, we didn't. I don't have any money. No. So, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, listeners might remember how we ended the show last week, which was giving Ian Collins a parrier for his uh, gangster rat impersonation, ah, yes. which led to a very interesting handover between the two of you. Who knew you did the gangster rat so well? I was just saying, you know, <laughs> it's not much of a job, that, is it? Mind detecting, really. What if you're a rat? I, I'm assuming you don't necessarily know the odds are against you, do you, really? <laughs> I was just saying, it's got another one. Everyone's yeah. congratulating the rat. Like yeah. the rat, like the rat knows. Like I mean, it might be able to find sniff one. Right. But I don't think it can help itself if it stands on one. Well, really, I don't think you can. No. It was one of the great conversations. Though. It was one of the great conversations, and I think it set precedent because mm. uh, this week we have the rat chat of the week. 
Jack smells a rat. I don't think he's alone in that uh, because I think many of us do. But I'm not sure that it's a corrupt rat. I think it's just a very stupid rat that can't find its way out of the rat's nest. And that's what we need is somebody to go in there with a blowtorch, kill the rat and get everybody out safely. Yeah. Simple, isn't it? I'm afraid this analogy has been taken too far. Do you like saying the word rat? Is I that do. what it is? I do like it. I mean, I think I it's like, a great word. It's a great line in, uh, from Joe Pesci in, in, in Goodfellas when he talks yes. about killing somebody and he's like, whole family's rats. Yeah. Oh, rats. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just, just, I like the sound of it. Yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah. Listen, do it every week. We'll I make it a regular thing. We can have a rat spot. We can have a rat spot. The rat yeah. chat spot rat of chat the week. Rat of the week. Rat yes. chat of the Excellent. week. Um, Dr. Lawrence Gurley, mm. friend of the show, wins a Perry for the surprise noise of the week. By the fact that they're scientific advisors and they have to advise yeah. worst case scenarios. But if this was something that was only affecting, say, people's inability to go on holiday, right... It's like one of those old, old ugh, can't speak. One of those old phones <laughs> from the seventies. Yes. Do you remember those tiny ones where yes. you had to, when you picked up the phone, the whole thing came. The whole thing. Right? Yeah. You didn't just pick up the receiver; the whole phone kind of came out of the yeah. wall. Yeah. Yeah. My parents had one of those. Yeah. Red. I remember. And he thought you were in some kind of sci-fi movie because it was just this little L-shaped yeah. receiver, like long. Yeah. yeah. Horrible, useless. Absolutely yeah. useless. Well, bless him, because we we still haven't managed how to work out how to do this whole visual peril reward thing. Yeah. But we wanted to do that because you can actually see him like just like reaching know, over, reaching well, over. Well, at least he like, didn't do the Bob Stewart manoeuvre, which was to say, "It's not, it's, it's not, not my, my phone." It's not my phone. <laughs> well, it is though. Um, the following parrot is called uh, "Out of Context." Howard Cox. Well, I, I, I'm a criminal, Mike. You know that. I'm, yep. I'm serving my time. <laughs> actually, it. I didn't. Actually, I didn't know that. Yeah, neither, neither did Although I. A lot of cyclists think he is. Yes, hmm. obviously he's yeah. not a criminal. It's just of out of context. Yeah. Hey, that's the joke. And yes. finally, here's a pair for you, Mike, for becoming the meteorologist of the week. There's an amazing looking cloud formation outside at the moment. <laughs> Looks like something after about a day after tomorrow-ish. It's very huge, big sort of white clouds turning grey and falling down into the sort of uh, the skyscrapers underneath in Canary Wharf. And then a big line of cloud going out <laughs> over the rest of the, uh, the city. Quite strange. Very interesting. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it was quite a remarkable looking was, se- selection was, of clouds. Yeah, no, it was quite cool. It was cool. like somebody created it, mm-hmm. almost, like well, maybe the creator. Who knows? Whoever that is. We're not that blessed with clouds today. Today it's very normal. It's just very average, aren't they? Very average clouds, yeah. Nothing yeah. nothing to write home about at all, really. Well. A bit grey. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope not. Because, you know, I'm going... Do you know where I'm supposed to go today? Go on. Ikea. <laughs> I, pr- I reckon it will take me at least two hours to get there. <laughs> Because the roads will Best be completely jammed. Yeah. And I've already said, if it takes me more than two hours to get to Greenwich, I'm not going. No. I'm just going to keep. I'm just going to keep going. Well, uh, best of luck to Thank you. Thank you very much. Best of luck to everyone. Thank That's you. That's all for the Perry Awards. There'll be more next week. The Perry Awards on Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.